Harold's pilgrimage, Byron prophesied that his voice would one day blend with the future visions of his daughter. And in ways which he could never have anticipated, he turned out to be proved right. In her letters, Ada Lovelace compares her work as an analyst with her father's as a poet, and claims to have, in fact, a very high order of poetical genius, even wondering if one day poetry might be her destiny or ultimate line. Today, I want to argue that the poetical consciousness that Lovelace brings to her understanding of the analytical engine proves to be the genesis of some of her most original mathematical and scientific ideas. We can find traces of romantic and poetic thought in her argument that the engine might be adapted to ends other than calculation, in her recognition that it enables an embodiment of what she terms the science of operations, in her longing to develop a calculus of the nervous system, and in her commentary on the problematic nature of originality. Like Manfred and Astarte, Lovelace and Byron shared many of the same lone thoughts and wanderings, a quest for hidden knowledge and a mind to comprehend the universe. But through translating her poetical inheritance into a mathematical and scientific sphere, Lovelace was able to bring a startlingly unique perspective to bear on Babbage's engines, which allowed her to conceptualize them in ways that nobody else at the time had dreamed of. Walter Isaacson recently observed in The Innovators that Lovelace has subsequently become somewhat associated with the question of whether or not man-made machines can ever truly think. I want to suggest, however, that a question perhaps better formulated to her actual interests is whether or not they can produce works of art. Arguably, Lovelace's greatest contribution to computer science was her realization that the analytical engine had a certain universality, that, could, that it could be adapted to operate upon things other than numbers that it might, for instance, compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree or, or complexity or extent. <laughs> Nor is the engine's artistic scope necessarily limited to music. Lovelace describes the engine weaving algebraical patterns just as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves, and also points out the highly complex designs that the jacquard loom was capable of itself, suggesting a possible encroachment on the visual arts. Now, Byron once described his own poetry as words woven into song. <laughs> If the engine can weave algebraic patterns, might it also, or some future iteration of it, likewise weave poetry by acting upon words instead of numbers? Now, the suggestion doesn't explicitly appear in Lovelace's writing, but the concept of um, machine-made literature turns up surprisingly frequently in the 19th century. The best known attempt at actually creating something like this was John Clark's Eureka Machine, which composed Latin hexameters by randomly combining various words to fill a prearranged metrical and grammatical structure. According to the inventor in an article in the Athenaeum, the machine contains letters in alphabetical arrangement, which the machine selects to form lines of poetry, quote, through the medium of numbers, rendered tangible by being expressed on wheel work. More frequently, however, this idea of machine-made poetry is raised in a satirical context. In 1844, a few years after Lovelace's influential notes, and I think possibly even influenced by the suggestion that the engine could be adapted to ends other than calculation, the magazine Punch lampooned Babbage's productions with the suggestion of a new patent mechanical novel writer, adapted to all styles and all subjects, pointed, pathetic, historic, silver fork, and Minerva, which would allow the writer to turn out a three-volume novel in a merely 48 hours, needing to do nothing more than throw in some dozen of the most popular works of the day and draw forth a spick-and-span new and original novel. And 
I always find this comic particularly amusing in light of the fact that Babbage himself once considered composing a three-volume novel in order to use the proceeds from this to finance the Difference Engine. And fortunately, before he got to the stage of actually attempting this, he discussed it with a literary friend who convinced him that this would be a terrible idea financially. Um, but perhaps the new patent mechanical novel writer could have been the solution to all of his financial woes. Um, in any case, there are also earlier romantic engagements with this notion of mechanized writing. So Coleridge, in what could almost be a premonition of the Eureka machine, writes that language had come to resemble a series of larger and smaller stereotype pieces, which required only an ordinary portion of ingenuity to vary indefinitely, and yet still produce something which, if not sense, would be so like it as to do as well. That it had become mechanized, as it were, into a barrel organ, which suggests that Coleridge perhaps shared Babbage's notorious distaste for street musicians. Um, <laughs> as Lovelace writes, the analytical engine might act upon any objects whose mutual fundamental relations could be expressed by the abstract science of operations. If language has degenerated into a series of conventional stereotypes of the kind suggested by Coleridge, then it too might be capable of mechanization. This possibility is possibility is also dramatized by Sir Walter Scott in his preface to The Betrothed. Now, in this curious fictionalized preface, Scott represents his own series of Waverley novels as the product of a collective of authors all publishing under the same name. The preface takes the form of minutes to a meeting in which they're discussing the possibility that, at the expense of a little mechanism, some part of the labor of composing these novels might be saved by the use of steam, facilitated by the fact that many of these novels are composed out of commonplaces. To quote, by placing the words and phrases technically employed on these subjects in a sort of framework and changing them by such a mechanical process as that which weavers of damask alter their patterns, many new and happy combinations cannot fail to occur, while the author, tired of pumping his own brains, may have an agreeable relaxation in the use of his fingers. It's worth noting, by the way, that this preface was published in 1825, so long before Babbage made any plans to incorporate features of the Jacquard loom into the analytical engine. So Scott actually comes up with this idea first. Um, I think it's also interesting that the author of Waverley is referenced in the Punch comic that I was talking about earlier, which I think makes it clear that contemporary audiences were supposed to connect the two. All of these descriptions seem to presuppose that any type of literature capable of mechanization must necessarily be bad or derivative, composed of randomly compiled hackneyed tropes and trite components. As Lovelace notes, the analytical engine can't originate anything. It can only do what we know how to order it to perform. And as it can't produce new ideas, it would have, at the most, the capacity only to rearrange and recombine ones that already existed. Can such products really be called artworks? We should consider, however, whether the engine's inability to originate ideas really renders it substantially different from the human mind. As Alan Turing observed in response to what he dubbed Lady Lovelace's objection, who can be certain that original work that he's done was not simply the growth of the seed planted in him by um, teaching or the effect of following well-known principles? Or as the poet Shelley puts it, every man's mind is modified by all the objects of nature and art by every word and every suggestion which he ever admitted to act upon his consciousness. This relationship between consciousness, agency, originality, and artistic production was a vexed one for the romantic poets. As a youth, Coleridge was a disciple of David Hartley's associationism, or psychological determinism, a theory which argued that, since the component particles of the human body are subjected to the same subtle laws as other material entities, the power of generating ideas must also arise from corporeal causes. Coleridge early on declared himself an advocate for the automatism of man and a believer in the corporeality of thought, thought itself. 
He later became disillusioned with this theory, although unfortunately not until after he'd named his firstborn son Hartley, expostulating that under this model, all acts of will, thought and attention became parts and products of a blind mechanism, and that the whole universe cooperates to produce the minutest stroke of every letter, save only that I myself and I alone have nothing to do with it, but merely the causeless and effectless beholding of it when it is done. Hartley's associationist model of the mind posed the danger of reducing even Shakespeare to an automaton of genius and attributed no more originality to the human mind than could be found in the analytical engine. Many of the anxieties surrounding Hartley's deterministic model of the mind come to be embodied in romantic poetry in the figure of the Aeolian harp. Now, an Aeolian harp is an instrument which is often placed in the casement of a window so that the breeze is allowed to sweep across it. Um, and so it's played by the wind alone, untouched by human hand, swept into musical expression by the movement of the air. Coleridge wonders if we're likewise just organic harps which tremble into thought as the intellectual breeze sweeps through us. Shelley describes the mind as an instrument over which external and internal impressions are driven, like the alternations of an ever-changing wind over the Aeolian lyre. This quintessentially romantic figure of chaotic poetic expression might seem, at first, to have little in common with Babbage's analytical engine. However, in their separate context, they both crystallize a number of concerns um, surrounding the relationship between the material world and the processes of the mind. Neither the harp nor the engine can think per se, but in producing music or performing calculations, they do perform, in Buxton's words, certain offices of thought, suggesting that some mathematical or artistic processes might be able to take place through purely mechanical means. They are both material, passive objects, but are nevertheless roused into artistic or mathematical production by outside forces. Now, Lovelace was incidentally an accomplished harpist, sometimes practicing four or five hours a day, and occasionally even to the detriment of her mathematics. It's interesting that in describing her own scientific abilities, she represents herself in terms which simultaneously evoke both of these figures, the harp and the engine. She describes herself in several places as being fundamentally passive, acted upon by divine or external forces, and requiring very powerful and continually acting external stimulants to excite her into activity. She refers to herself in one memorable passage as not a bit my own agent as to my own scientific progress and objects, but simply the instrument for divine purposes to act on and through. She merely speaks the voice that she's inspired with and functions as a vocal organ for the ears of mortals on behalf of God and his agents. She goes on to state that she might refuse this mission, but that she would be thrown out of gear with the heavenly. Now, her use of the word instrument in this passage is particularly clever because it could evoke either a scientific or a musical instrument. When she alludes to becoming a vocal organ or being inspired with a voice, she seems to hint towards the Aeolian harp or a musical instrument. Her use of the word inspire, in particular from the Latin inspirare, to breathe or blow into, also suggests the surge of the divine afflatus sweeping through the lyre. However, the reference to being thrown out of gear with the heavenly clearly evokes Babbage's engines, which were designed to jam immediately if they were ever thrown out of gear. For Lovelace, then, the harp and the engine are almost interchangeable metaphors which she merges together to help describe her own creative and scientific production. Lovelace's letters suggest that her own views on psychology might have tended towards something similar to Hartley's psychological determinism. She describes herself as a molecular laboratory, a portion of the material forces of the world entitled the body of AAL, and refers to one of her correspondents as a chaotic mass of various heterogeneous atoms, organic and inorganic. She was interested in German research on the microscopical structure and changes in the brain, nervous matter, and also in the blood, and had hopes of one day getting cerebral phenomena such that she could put them into mathematical equations. In short, a law or laws for the mutual actions of the molecules of brain. 
she hoped to bequeath to the generations a calculus of the nervous system. The implications of this ambition are quite astounding. If she had been able to develop a system of this sort such that it could be programmed into an engine, then Dionysus Laden's overzealous proclamation that the powers of thought had been thrown into real, real work would have been genuinely realized. Now, Lovelace, of course, never completed her calculus of the nervous system. However, the analytical engine did still make some inroads into the processes of human thought. As Lovelace writes, the analytical engine is capable of both analysis and synthesis, two processes which even the romantic poets conceded to be legitimate components of poetic production. Shelley begins his defense of poetry, for instance, by defining synthesis and analysis precisely as the two principal classes of mental action. Reason, he writes, is the principle of analysis, the process by which the mind contemplates the relation borne by one thought to another, like algebraical representations which conduct to certain general results, and those are his words. Imagination, on the other hand, is the principle of synthesis, which allows the mind to compose from those thoughts, as from elements, other thoughts. According to Shelley, poetry creates by combination and representation. Poetical abstractions, as he writes in his preface to Prometheus Unbound, are beautiful and new, not because the portions of which they're composed had no previous existence, but because of the combinations which can be produced from these basic elements. Lovelace also conveniently wrote an essay on the imagination in fragmentary form, um, in which she too combined, defined the combining faculty as one of its two principal functions, a faculty which brings together things, facts, ideas, conceptions in new, original, endless, ever-varying combination. Even if the analytical engine can't originate anything, in its capacity for combination at the very least, it does participate for both Lovelace and Shelley in some of the most important aspects of imaginative creation. And I'd actually like to pinch a quotation from Sharon Rustin's talk on, um, at the Graduate Workshop on Tuesday, I hope you don't mind, um, this time from Mary Shelley in her introduction to Frankenstein. Invention doesn't consist in creating out of a void, but out of chaos. The materials must, in the first place, be afforded. The workings of the analytical engine, therefore, seem not entirely divorced from the processes by which the mind produces poetry. In fact, for Lovelace, for whom mathematics was characterized by an intrinsic beauty and symmetry, the engine's mathematical productions are almost artistic in their own right. Like poetry or language, mathematics represents the world using symbols. Lovelace often describes mathematics as a language, in fact the language of unseen relations between things, or the language through which alone we can adequately express the great facts of the natural world and read the creator's works. In these descriptions, she echoes an idea which we find all throughout romantic poetry, the idea that the world is a text of some sort which can be made legible for mankind um, th through the means of language, mathematics, or other types of symbol. Coleridge, for example, writes that the universe in the most literal sense is God's written language, or the transcript of the omnipotent. In Child Harold's pilgrimage, Byron's narrator desires to quit man's works again to read his makers spread about me. This idea that the world is a text composed out of some sort of language, mathematical or otherwise, produces a rather unusual and arcane but nonetheless powerful idea in both Lovelace and her romantic precursors. As Umberto Eco writes in The Search for the Perfect Language, if it were true that the universe was constructed from letters and numbers, it would follow that whoever knew the mathematical rules behind this construction might act directly on the universe. This leads to the desire, I think, as Coleridge phrases it, to destroy the old antithesis of words and things, elevating, as it were, words into things and living things too. A desire to imbue language or mathematics with a concreteness that would allow it to attain a kind of reality in itself. We find this in Kublai Khan when Coleridge aspires towards a song so powerful that it would manifest itself as a dome in the air. 
Byron too longs for words which are things, as he says. He writes in Child Herald's Pilgrimage, could I embody and unbosom now that which is most within me? Could I wreak my thoughts upon expression and thus through soul, heart, mind, passions, feelings strong or weak? All that I would have sought and all I seek, bear, know, feel and yet breathe into one word and that one word were lightning, I would speak. This seems like a strange notion and it's easy to dismiss as a metaphor. <laughs> But this longing that it might be possible to produce a language so powerful that it could break out into the physical world like a bolt of lightning embodied in reality has existed throughout the ages in the forms of beliefs in the efficacy of spells and incantations in the religious tradition of the primal creative logos. It's what Nietzsche speaks of when he describes the superstitious utility of poetry, which through the hypnotic quality of its rhythm led, pe led people to believe that they could throw it around the gods like a magic noose. And what Flaubert laments when he writes that language is like a cracked kettle on which we beat out tunes for bears to dance to, while all the time we long to move the stars to pity. As Byron writes, why should not the mind act with and upon the universe as portions of it act upon and with the congregated dust called mankind? See how one man acts upon himself and others, or upon multitudes. The same agency, in a higher and purer degree, may act upon the stars, etc., ad infinitum. In a way, this is almost the inverse of the problem that we were considering in relation to Hartley's associationism. Hartley's theory dealt with how the physical world shaped or affected the mind, but Byron is interested in how the mind might act upon the physical world. The eponymous hero of Manfred achieves an agency of this nature, which renders the earth, ocean, air, night, and mountains at his beck and bidding, a power which significantly he executes through language, a written charm. Lovelace is not immune to these sorts of fantasies. She maintains that she has mysterious powers over others, styling herself a fairy and the high priestess of Babbage's engine. Babbage himself referred to her as an enchantress who has thrown her magic spell around the most abstract of sciences. In a letter to her mother, she declares that she will in time be an autocrat, commanding marshaled regiments and harmoniously disciplined troops, consisting of vast numbers marching in irresistible power to the sound of music. Rather than desiring to command nature or spirits with words, spells, and enchantments, she longs to command machinery through the science of operations. And her claim to autocratic dominion through the powers of mathematics um, is as fantastic and imaginative as that of her literary predecessors. In addition to this fairyism, however, she perceives in the analytical engine a practical means of enacting some of the incarnational or materializing possibilities that Coleridge and Byron yearned for in literature. The analytical engine literally incarnates mathematical operations into the movements of its physical metallic structure, impressed into the turning of its wheels. Numbers and operations are represented physically um, uh, on cogs and on punch cards, and when the handle is cranked, they're combined and woven together in physical space, tracing out in their movement the very mathematical operations that they're actually undergoing. As such, the analytical engine establishes, in Lovelace's words, a uniting link between the operations of matter and the most abstract mental processes of the most abstract branch of, the, uh, of mathematical science. It brings the mental and material into more intimate and effective connection with each other. It translates the principles of mathematics into explicit practical forms. It is, as she says, an embodying of the science of operations, the material and mechanical representative of analysis. It manages, in its own way, to destroy the antithesis not between words and things, but between things and mathematical symbols. 
Before I finish, I want to return to a passage from Babbage's Ninth Bridgewater Treatise, which Richard Holmes also quoted yesterday. Babbage describes how the vibrations of the human voice impress the air with pulsations, so that each atom retains the motions of all the words that have ever reverberated within it. The air, he writes, is one vast library, full of mutable but unerring characters, recording everything that has ever been spoken. Byron longed for a word that would strike lightning from the sky. But, as Babbage explains, all words, in fact, are forever indelibly impressed upon the air. The operator of the analytical engine, likewise, would send ripples through its mechanism, and the difference engine in motion, if you've ever seen it, literally does ripple. Just like the reverberations of a voice in the air are like a breeze sweeping through the Aeolian harp, but with a permanency and a solidity which preserves its results for human as well as cosmic record. The analytical engine gives us that which Wordsworth longed for in the prelude, some element for the mind to stamp her image on in nature somewhat nearer to her own. Lovelace's approach to the powers of the analytical engine is rooted, I think, in modes of thinking which we more often associate with poetry. It's because of this that she was able to conceive of the analytical engine in a radically innovative way, as a mechanism capable of analyzing, synthesizing, and combining, not only mathematics, but music, art, potentially even language. She sees the engine not just as a calculating tool, but as the fulfillment of the romantic dream of poetic embodiment. Lovelace was, in truth, her father's heir, and she likewise bestows on the analytical engine the poetical inheritance of the Aeolian harp. Lovelace imagines the intellectual breeze sweeping through the engine just as it sweeps through a lyre, producing music, mathematics, and other works of art and beauty as it passes, incarnating them into its physical structure of brass. As such, her work deservedly earns the title that she aspired to, that of a poetical science.